when God created the world in the beginning, he created it good, but at the same time, it wasn't finished. He created the world good, but it was raw, full of potential. And that's why he gave Adam and Eve the ability to cultivate the things that they had, gave them raw materials, gave them uh, the ability with a mind to cultivate tools, using those raw materials to create different things. And the whole idea is, as Adam and Eve were created without sin, they'd be able to create almost like an artist paints or some kind of uh, musician writes music, something to give glory and worth to the God who created them. So it's an act of worship. And since the fall, since sin entered the world, they started having that same image of God. It started becoming distorted. So all their creations have a little bit of sin inside of it, all of it. Nothing we do is ever a real perfect work, really, if you think about it. There's always a little bit of selfish motivation. There's still a little bit of sin that taints everything that we do. And so originally we were intended and designed to spread the image of God, his brand of goodness around the entire world. But since that's been messed up, we start replicating our own image. Now we all want to deep down inside, make something of our life and for ourselves and be known and be loved and be seen. And not all of that is bad, but when we put that as the first and foremost priority, now we have selfishness. The first thing I wanna do is make everybody love me, everybody see me, everybody hear me. I want people to look at me and worship me. That is the propensity of each and every one of our hearts. So God starts giving us commands and he says, actually you can sum up all of the rules, all the regulations in this. Love God and love your neighbor as yourself. To start looking at other people as more important than yourself. To look for their needs instead of your own, which is countercultural and, and counterintuitive to the way that we are born. So what do we do? Well, the idea is that we are to redeem this mission. Go back to what we were created to do at the beginning. When we meet with Jesus, when we believe on him, the whole goal is that we get back to that, get back to the garden. The whole reason why we we're here in the first place, to give God glory in everything that we do and everything that we create. And here at this church at Philadelphia, what you'll see is they don't have any rebuke. All the other churches we've seen thus far have a lot of good things to say, but then some bad things to say. But this church only received condemnation, or not condemnation, commendation. So they are commended for everything they do. So the question that I ask is, if what's holding you back from serving God with all your mind, heart, soul, and strength isn't this hidden sin, isn't the fact that you're struggling with this temptation that nobody knows, like what exactly is holding us back in a time like this? And this, here what we're gonna see is, this church was exhorted by God to look at the path in front of them and see that God, if God is for them, who can be against them? So we have to ask the same question. What's holding us back from embracing the God-given opportunities in front of us? In the past, I've asked the question, and it's worth asking again. If the next five people that you came across who did not know Jesus would believe in Jesus if you simply told them about him, would you do it? So the next five conversations you have with an unbeliever about God, they would accept him as Lord and Savior. Would you talk to them about Jesus? 
And I think all of us would say, yeah, of course I would, I would do that. So then why don't we do that? Why do we hesitate? And I think it, it really stems from a fear of failure. We basically talk to people where we feel like we're guaranteed success. And if we don't see that success guaranteed, then we shy away from the opportunity. So we have fear of failure as this major limitation to the calling that God has put on us. But I wanna challenge you tonight that God has given us a mission that cannot fail. And we're gonna see that in the verses that we read. So look at verse seven again. So the, to the angels of the church in Philadelphia write, these things, things, these things says he who is holy, he who is true, he who has the key of David, he who opens and no one shuts and shuts and no one opens. Now here, what we see is there's the, the idea of the key of David. So God has the key of David. What does that mean? Well, David, King David, this is a reference to Isaiah chapter 22. But the whole idea is that God has the highest of all authorities. He is the king of kings. Now, we, we're kind of removed from like kingship, right? We're removed from royalty and we're not under a monarchy. So you have to put yourself back in that position. Imagine we had a monarchy today. For most of us, that'd be terrifying. Right now, we look at our president, past presidents, current president, and we fear them having too much power. But if you're a king, you literally, whatever you decree is done. Think about in the book of Esther, when there was uh, King Artaxerxes was having his beauty pageant and he was having women lined up and he was basically choosing his next wife because he didn't like his last wife. And so Esther was one of those women and, and he chose Esther. And once he chose Esther, she decided to go up to the king, interrupt him in the middle of his day and uh, talk to him about the fact that Jews were about to be murdered. This is all in the book of Esther. So maybe a review for some of you, but maybe some of you have never read the book of Esther. So what Queen Esther does is she decides to risk her life by going to meet with the king. That's literally what happened. Because if you went into the king uninvited, he had the option of extending his scepter to you or not. If he did not extend his scepter, that means that you were to be killed. So the queen literally would have been killed just by coming in uninvited. So that gives you an idea of the kind of power, for better or for worse, kings had. Well, here's the thing. And this is your first point for this evening. I want to argue that God is the higher authority that our world needs. God is the higher authority that our world needs. What we've seen in all of history is that man is not able to govern himself. And we look at different forms of government over the years. We look at royalty, we look at monarchies, kings, and we go, well, they have too much power. So then you have, instead of kings, then you have a democracy or you have a panel of people, or then there's a dictator who says, I'm gonna be able to make sweeping changes in the nation if you just follow me. And you've seen every form of government has some corruption. So then you have our own form of government and then there's checks and balances in order to keep one person from having too much power. But all of us know that our society, our government is not free of corruption either. So then the question is, what kind of government can truly lead us into righteousness? What kind of government can truly judge the world and lead our nation in a way that's always just and always right? And the answer I'd like to suggest to you is, the world will only be at peace if God is the one who is on the throne. 
It's only when King Jesus is ruling that you can trust and you can sit back and go, all right, things will be okay. Because otherwise, where is the accountability? What you find here is that people start arguing for what's right and what's just, right? And as they're arguing for justice, as they're arguing for righteousness, everybody has a different idea on what righteousness is. And so that's where it becomes my opinion versus your opinion. Some countries, they believe in loving your neighbors. Other countries, they believe in eating your neighbors. And so it's just a matter of opinion. And who are we to judge our morals as better or worse than somebody else's morals? In fact, if evolutionary theory is true and God does not exist, what you find is morals are just things that happened as an evolutionary adaptation, like an arm or a leg, but it doesn't mean that it's right or it's wrong. It's just, I mean, I grew up in my culture and maybe the environment I was raised in led me to believe that marriage is the right way to go about a relationship, whereas others may believe that Rape is the right way to go about a relationship. Now, all of us in our gut know that rape is wrong, but in the animal kingdom, rape isn't wrong. So who are we to think that humans know better than animals? In fact, if animals are our ancestors, then why should we have any kind of judgments? Now, most people would say, well, that's ridiculous. Everybody knows what's right and wrong. But then if we disagree on what right and wrong is all the time, who's the one who's gonna be able to say, hey, here it is. Here what, here's exactly what truth is. Here's what the lie is. Here's what righteousness is. Here's what falsehood is. We need a higher authority. And all of us know that we can't just put blind trust in the human authorities above us. In fact, I would say if you have a good God who created us with our sense of goodness, that is the safest way to ensure that we know exactly, precisely what the good and wrong would be. Psalm chapter 45, verse 6 says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. You love righteousness and hate wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your companions. When you know that there's somebody who is in authority that you can trust, that's a safe place to be. I mean, that's why as kids, you're always running to your parents whenever your brother or your sister is wronging you. Because you know they're going to be able to set them straight like that. I mean, they do it to me all the time. Alan, you have to come here and you have to, you have to tell Cruz that he's wrong. Here, he hit me or he punched me or he lied to me. They do that because they know that there's safety in having a moral authority. But if the human authorities that we put in authority above us can't be trusted, then what do you do? Well, I believe that every king currently that exists right now, every authority borrows its crown from God. And this is only a temporary season we have that man would govern themselves for a brief season. I don't believe that capitalism and, and democracy is the answer. I don't believe that communism and Marxism is the answer. I'm not saying that some systems may be better than others in a pragmatic way, but what I will say is there will be no perfect government, no perfect kingdom until Jesus comes back to rule and reign. Now, if you follow that logically, then that means this. If God is king, then what God has determined, no one can oppose. Just like no one can truly oppose a king unless you want to revolt against the king. Um, if God is decreeing something, if God is ruling, then truly no one can oppose it. Now when I oppose it, I don't, I don't mean that you can't try, but it's almost like swimming against a riptide. It's futile. You're inevitably 
going to fall uh, to the sway of the tide. It's like Judas when he opposed Jesus. He had planned to betray him, but little did he know that betraying Jesus actually led to the possibility of salvation for the entire world. He delivered Jesus to the cross, and it's by the cross that you and I can have forgiveness today. But the question is, are you living in opposition to God? Are you living in futility because you're opposing the God of the universe? Well, how would you know? How would you know if you're opposing God? Because many people feel like, no, me and God are cool. Jesus is my homeboy. Remember those t-shirts? I always thought that was the weirdest thing. But they think, I'm good. I had confirmation when I was little. I, I prayed, I was an altar boy. But I wouldn't ask you based on your feeling, right? I know this, I've learned this by now, okay? I may feel like I did nothing wrong and I could have 10 people completely upset with me. And I can still feel justified, but that doesn't mean that I'm right. It just means I'm ignorant of the truth that I've wronged somebody. The real question is, have you and I wronged the God of the universe? Well, how would you know? The answer is, he wrote us a book, a letter that's a revelation of his will for all of humanity. And in this book, it says that all people are sinners, you and me. We've all done, done wrong. We all perpetuate injustice in the world. Just think about this. No sin can truly ever be undone. When you wrong somebody else, we look for reparations. We look for penance, some way to atone for the sin, but the sin isn't undone just because you're trying to make it right. This is why when you have money that's stolen from you, you can theoretically repay all that money and give it back. But what about the fact that you've now breached someone's trust? There's been betrayal. Talk about anxiety. If you rob their house, now they feel like their house isn't safe. There's so much damage beyond the money that's actually stolen. And when we sin, we're not just hurting the person that we've sinned against. We've hurt the God who's created us. He created us for good, and instead of doing good, we've chosen to do evil. So many of us may feel like we're good, but the question is, are you ignorant of the wrong that you actually have done against God? Lacey Sturm, who's the singer of Flyleaf, popular band, she has this quote in one of her books. She said, when you're standing in front of God saying, I'm good, it's like saying I'm tall when you're standing in front of a mountain. I'm big when you're standing in front of the ocean or I'm old while looking at the stars. I realized I had no good, but no idea what good was because up to that point, I had not stood in the presence of the God who made the universe. You see, the Bible says, the wages of sin is death. What you get as your reward for sinning is you get death. There is no answer. There is no way to ever make your sin right. You can't undo the things that you've done. So all of us deserve to have that life that was given to us, borrowed from God, that life should be put to an end. Because we'll only continue to perpetuate destruction, injustice, and evil in the world. So are you living in opposition towards God? Well, the good news is all of us are. Initially, we were all the enemies of God and Jesus saw us and loved his enemies. While we were still sinners at our worst, he died for us on the cross so that all you and I have to do is believe on him, trust in him for salvation, and we would be made right with him. We'd be forgiven. You can know today 
that you are forgiven for every one of your sins, past, present, and future, simply by saying to God, I'm sorry, would you forgive me? I trust in you to save me. Only you can change this wicked heart of mine and make me a new creation. And once we do that, he gives us a new heart, a heart to love even the unlovable because we were once the unlovable. He gives us a heart to suddenly care for the people around us that we, we never thought we would ever care about. And that's the only thing that can truly save this world today is a love that surpasses all understanding, a love that surpasses circumstances. It's what we've come to know, unconditional love, which says, I love you despite what you do, no matter how many wrongs you commit against me. Whether you sin against me 70 times, seven times, it doesn't matter because my God has forgiven me of all that I've done. But here's the thing, you and I will have to make a choice. You have to choose, do you wanna side with the God of the universe or do you wanna live in opposition towards that God of the universe? Think, people think that Jesus was kinda of just like, yeah, whatever you do is fine, you know, I love everybody, I'll heal everybody. But listen to what Jesus says. This is a very unpopular passage. Matthew chapter 10, verse 34. Do not think that I came to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. Wait, what? I thought Jesus was a peacemaker. In this context, I'll, I'll explain. He, he says, no. For I have come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's enemies will be those of his own household. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Now, what does that mean? Well, in context, what Jesus is saying is, you need to make a choice. Who are you going to love the most? And there may come a time that your own family, your closest friends will hate you by the very fact that you say that you love God. We don't know why. Even when it comes down to one of our, our very own elders, the one who's locking up tonight in the church, he grew up in a very strict uh, Jewish household. And he'll tell you the story himself. He shared it from the pulpit before. But his own family, once they found out he believed in Jesus, disowned him and, and created a grave site for him where they said that they buried him. It's crazy. He has a crazy testimony. But his whole family has denounced him and separated from him because he chose Jesus. And here's what Jesus is saying. He's not saying that, he doesn't believe that he gives you peace. What he's saying is Christianity may cost you something. It costs Jesus Christ his life. And you and I will also have to make a sacrifice. You may be unpopular. You may lose friends, family. But I'll tell you that it is, it is the one decision that you will never regret in your life. Because he is the only one who will truly bring you peace and the love that you've always been looking for. Let's continue on, verse eight. Jesus says, I know your works. See, I have set before you an open door and no one can shut it. For you have a little strength, have kept my word and have not denied my name. So we know point one was God is the higher authority our world needs. But here's point two. A little strength goes far when your path is clear. A little strength goes far when your path is clear. Here Jesus is saying to this church of Philadelphia, hey, listen, I opened a door that no one could close. And if I shut a door, no one's gonna be able to open it. I see that you have a little bit of strength. You got, you got something going on there. Just keep going. You've kept my word. You haven't denied my name. 
think about like when I'm driving in New York City, there's nothing like that makes me more jealous than when I'm stuck in traffic and then you have the bike lane. Obviously the car with horsepower, but that bike lane, nothing's in front of them and so they just scoot on by. That's kind of the idea here is, if God is for you and God's the one opening the door, who's truly gonna be the one who opposes you? Who's gonna stand against you? It's not the amount of strength and ability and gifting and talent. The question is, are you on God's side and are you following his ways? Because if that's the case, then there will be nothing that stands in your way. A little strength goes far when your path is clear. It's what happened in the, in the famous story of David and Goliath. Who's gonna take care of this giant who's, who's standing tall and has weapons that are, that are so heavy and, and he has this armor that's impenetrable? Who's gonna be able to defeat him? The answer is a little boy who doesn't have any armor and he has a slingshot instead of a sword. But he was able to penetrate the skull of the giant simply because he was the instrument and the vessel that God wanted to use for the task. But there are many people in the Bible who had a little strength and they went far. Moses complained to God that he wasn't very eloquent in his speech and yet God used him to speak to Pharaoh, the highest authority in his location, to set the people free. Peter denied Jesus three times and was even denying him in front of a little girl, in front of a fireplace. Gideon was the weakest in the weakest tribe of his people. So what is your little strength? Do you know your gifting? Do you know what God has given you as a talent or ability to use for his kingdom? Maybe you've never really thought about that question. You don't really know what your gifting is and this is the time to ask, time to question. Because God wants to use you in whatever capacity and whatever sphere of influence you have. I remember when I was in a, a screaming band back in 2005, which is true. You can still look, listen to us on Spotify. Maybe we'll be famous one day. Um, I really thought that my, my gifting was more, more so just in music. Because anytime that I would play for this band, not, I didn't really play, I just screamed into a mic. But anytime I did that, I felt like it was an opportunity to talk to unsafe people. They would come to our shows, we go evangelize them in the mall, and uh, they would show up, and then we got to talk to them afterwards. To me, that was like the coolest thing. And I'm so excited about that. But I thought my gifting was screaming, believe it or not. But the answer was, I was just passionate about evangelism. I was passionate about reaching lost people, having a conversation where you're talking to someone and like, whoa, I've never heard that before. And you're not even saying anything really intelligent. You're just saying the basics. But the fact is they've never heard the gospel before. And so it's life-changing. It's transformative. So you may have something that you're passionate about. And my argument is, in the Bible, the word spiritual gift in the Greek is charisma. You can think about it like this. What is God's passion he's given you? What is his heart he's given you for a specific task? Just roll with it. Don't ask yourself, am I good at this? Ask yourself, am I passionate? Two very different questions. Some people stop going down the path God wants to lead them because they feel like they're not equipped. But it's not about whether or not you're talented or you're able. The question is, are you called? Because if you're called, then God will equip the called as you go and follow him. But that requires you to figure out what doors are open before you. Maybe 
there's a door that's open of opportunity that you, you completely neglected just because you're focused in a completely different direction. You're thinking of like, oh, you know what? This must be my gifting and this, this is probably what God wants me to do, so I'm just gonna go. And you've gone and you haven't prayed about it, you haven't thought about it, you just, this is the logical thing. I go to college, I get a job, and I live my life. This is what I do. This is why I went to college in the first place. But you haven't stopped to think about, well, what am I, what am I gifted in? What does God want me to do? Ask his opinion and allow him to guide you. Sometimes God has to shut the door in every other place for you to wind up in the right place. It's what happened to the Apostle Paul. He was like, I'm going to Asia. I'm going to this place. I'm going to that place. And it wasn't until he eventually landed at Troas because he realized that all the other doors were shut. He was hindered. And God led him by closing doors to the open one. Sometimes we strive so hard to kick the door open. You ever feel that way? It's kind of like our discussion question. Sometimes we strive so hard because we're so convinced this must be what God wants me to do. That was me. I, I, I remember praying a prayer in 2009 at the Bible College in California during a youth workers conference. And I said, at that time, I'd taken a year off from college to figure out what I want to do with my life. And I prayed, I said, all right, Lord, I figure you either want me to be a musician, an actor, or a photographer which is funny now, right? Like basically none of those things. But I said, all right, I have a year to figure out which one of those things I'm gonna be, so I need you to tell me which one you want me to do. And I received no answers. And it was six months of the most depressing time of my life. Because I figured I haven't received an answer. I have no idea what I'm supposed to do. It feels like God's not speaking to me and, and everybody else has their life figured out but me. Like that's even more aggravating when you feel like not only did I not know what I'm doing, but it seems like everybody else knows what they're doing. And I remember being at, um, at a, uh, a birthday party for a friend six months later, and Andy Dean's best friend happened to be there. And in talking to him, he said, hey, Alan, what's going on? Like, what have you been doing? And at that time, for five years, I was working as a gas attendant, so I really did not have, like, there's no way I was advancing in the company. You know, there's not like top lead gas attendant. So that was it. <laughs> I was working part-time in a gas station and serving at the church in junior high ministry. And so I was so frustrated at that point. I said, I don't know. I just want God to tell me what he wants me to do. And he said to me, well, aren't you serving in the junior high ministry with Andy? Yeah, but I want to know what he wants me to do. And he says, I think you should just be like faithful where you're at. And I was like, you don't understand. I cannot make a, you know, a living, build a family off of working at a gas station, pumping gas. I literally do not have a job in 48 other states. Even if I build up the skill, I'm useless to the rest of the world. But what's funny is about a month later, I took that seriously and all my time was just spent with some of you guys. Some of you guys remember that. It's just like I had no life. It was kind of weird. I'm like 20 years old and all I do is spend, spend time with junior high kids. But I loved it. We did the craziest, weirdest things. I remember Dean Smith who moved down to uh, uh, South Carolina, or North, I don't remember, North Carolina, somewhere South. in there, South Carolina. And I remember like, we went to Dunkin' Donuts, well, we went to Walmart, we bought like a two by four, and then we went to Dunkin' Donuts, and we just like, ordered coffee, went through drive through window, and I gave him a two by four through the windows, like, here's your tip. And the guy like completely played it off, like it was the funniest thing, he was just like, oh, thank you so much, I never had a board before, and he just took it in. And, was, and then we like went to Mike Filomeno's Starbucks and we chucked cheeseburgers through the drive-thru window. It was the best thing. And I was like, 
this is so fun. And I remember praying to God and I said, Lord, if all you want me to do for the rest of my life is work at a gas station and serve at the church, I'd be okay with that. And I was 100% honest. And little did I know that maybe two months after that is when Andy actually asked me to take over junior high ministry, which was out of left field for me. So I'm not saying you should do that so that secretly you're gonna get the job that you want. But what I am saying is sometimes you don't realize the road that's right in front of you because you're so busy trying to fight the door that is closed. So find out what is your little strength? What is the gift that God wants to cultivate? And then follow passionately in that direction. Also says in the latter part of, latter part of verse eight, you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Now, why would people deny Jesus and leave the word of God? Maybe someone who says, you know, it's just not working for me. I was pretty close right there. I felt like every door was closed. I felt like Christianity wasn't working for me. Or maybe you're thinking it's too hard. There's too much pressure from the world to act in a certain way, to conform and look a certain way. And you feel like Christianity and its demands are just too high. Well, in the same way, it's, it's kind of like by way of analogy, a lot like marriage in that when you marry somebody, a lot of people might have tension, frustration. It's not working out. I don't feel fulfilled. I, and that's what leads many people to divorce because it doesn't seem like it's working for them or the pressure's too hard. And they're not realizing that what's more important is that commitment that you've made. You're gonna have ups and downs in marriage and your relationship with Jesus. You will have dry seasons. But that doesn't mean that God has opportunity on the other side. As Peter was casting his net on one side and said to Jesus, we've cast all night long and have drawn up empty. All it took was Jesus to say, try casting the same net on the other side for him to obey and to gather so much fish that the net itself started to break. You don't know if opportunity might be just on the other side if you would simply listen to God's voice and you would wait on him. All it really takes is, a, is faith the size of a mustard seed, a little strength. It's like when the disciples, they were taking the loaves and the fish saying, how are we gonna feed everyone with only this? And they still brought it to Jesus and he was able to multiply what they had. Let's look at verse nine. Let's look at the result of this little strength. Indeed, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. Indeed, I will make them come and worship before your feet and to know that I have loved you. What he's saying here is not like these people that are opposing Jesus are going to worship his followers. That's like not what it's talking about. What it's talking about is the vindication. There are people that are opposed to God. And one day there'll be the vindication that we were right all along. In Psalm chapter 110, verse one, it says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. There will come a day that everybody will see that Jesus Christ truly is Lord. Denying God is a lot like denying gravity. You can choose not to believe it, but you can jump up and you're just gonna fall down. You can say, it's just a matter of my opinion. You believe in gravity? I don't, that's your opinion you're still going to fall down when you jump up. In the same way, if God is truth, he really does exist, 
We can choose not to believe in him, but that would just make us ignorant of all the avenues that he's trying to use to speak to us. This is why the Bible says that people suppress the truth and unrighteousness. I really do believe that God makes himself known to every single individual that's on this planet. And you have to decide whether or not you embrace the light given to you or you reject it. But there's two kinds of opposition towards God. There's intentional and passive opposition. Intentional opposition is something like Jesus minus. Yeah, we, we like Jesus, but like the idea of Jesus, we don't really like the God Jesus. We like the teacher Jesus. We like the, the love your neighbor Jesus, but not the love your God Jesus. So people that subtract things from Jesus are the intentional people that are opposed. But there are also passive uh, people that are opposed to Jesus. Those would be the Jesus plus people. Those are the people that aren't necessarily opposed to Jesus. It's just, I love Jesus and I love my addiction to substances. I love Jesus and I believe that I have to work for my own salvation. I like Jesus and I like a relationship and worshiping that other person. We add things to the gospel and by doing that we oppose the true gospel altogether. So we need to understand that one day, even those who oppose God will worship in the end. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. The question is, do you wanna find out today or do you wanna find out in the end? Because when Jesus Christ does appear to the whole world, people will see him as he is and then it will be undeniable that he is God and undeniable that he was right all along. People will not be allowed, able to oppose him to his face because they will see him as the creator of the universe and worship him as such. So third point for this evening is this, even those who oppose God will worship in the end. Even though those who oppose God will worship in the end. Let's finish up by reading uh, chat, uh, verse 10 and 11. So we see, because you have kept my command to persevere, I also will keep you from the hour of trial, which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. Behold, I am coming quickly. Hold fast what you have, that no one may take your crown. It's really important that we don't allow the popular, popularized versions of the end time stuff to distract us from the fact that we really do believe that Jesus will return and there will be a literal seven year period of tribulation that will befall the entire earth. We really do believe beyond all the conspiracies about like, is Bill Gates the Antichrist? Is this person the Antichrist? We really do believe that there will be at some point in time, a real person who will be the Antichrist, who will deceive the entire world. We really do believe that. And that's just being biblical. You can say it's crazy, but at that point, you're just dismissing the truth because of the, the hyper uh, exaggerations of the truth. Instead, we have to look at what does the Bible say? And if the Bible says right here that those who are faithful will escape or will be kept from the hour of trial which shall come upon the whole world, then we have to believe that that time of trial will actually happen. It's going to be the most terrifying, most destructive time that's ever happened in human history. What we're experiencing right now with coronavirus, the earthquakes, locusts in Africa, all that stuff, is nothing 
to be compared with the tribulation that is to come. That's a fact. That's why I was terrified of the book of Revelation up until I was 25. These things are true. But here's the hope you have, which is verse 11. Hold fast what you have. Don't deny his name. Keep his word. Have your little strength. And no one will take your crown, which is a crown of victory. Don't let, don't let Satan rob you of the opportunities you have to tell people about Jesus today. We, we said that this would be an invite night. Not sure how many new people there are tonight, but listen, people today are dying. Whether it's coronavirus, whether it's a car accident, whether it's drugs, there are lost people dying every single day and you and I have the opportunity to share the truth with them. God forbid that we would neglect to hold that out of the fear of rejection, out of the fear of our inadequacy. But realize if God has opened that path, God has opened that door and God has put that person in front of you, then yes, God has called you and he will equip you in that moment. Even at times Jesus said to his disciples, you're gonna be brought before kings and you'll have to testify, but don't even worry, don't even pre-plan what you're gonna say. Because in that moment, the Holy Spirit will give you the words that you were to speak. And that wasn't just for them, I think that's for today too. Sometimes you'll find yourself as you step out in faith and you say, I don't know what I'm doing. I'm just gonna talk about Jesus. You find out in that moment, you have words that you're like, where did that come from? You have verses that you even know you memorized. It's because the Holy Spirit lives inside of you and he brings to remembrance the things that Jesus has said. And it's a wild ride to be on when the Holy Spirit is guiding you through a straight open door. So finally, the last two verses, verse 12. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go out no more. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God, and I will write on him my new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now, this is a very relevant example just in conclusion here because the church at philadelphia would have frequent earthquakes and because they had such large stone structures they would always have to evacuate go in and go out go out when there was an earthquake come back in when the earthquake was over and in the midst of this jesus says i will make him a pillar in the temple of my god because these stone pillars would be the only thing standing when the earthquake earthquakes would happen and for those that trust in Jesus, go through the open door with your little strength, keeping his word, holding fast his name. For those people, you find yourself unshakable, steadfast in the midst of tribulation, tragedy, whatever it is that would befall our nation or us personally, that with God, we truly are overcomers. If God is for us, who can be against us? So once again, I'll ask the question a billionth time. What is, holding you, what is holding you back from embracing the opportunities in front of you? Let's not excuse it on social distancing or on the fact that we are getting back into the groove with work and school and busyness. Let's admit that God has opportunities for us all around if we would just open our eyes and see the wide open door in front of us. If you don't know your spiritual gift, why not talk to a spiritual leader, mentor, why not have discussions around it so that we can embrace it and passionately pursue the thing that God has given us to worship him and to reach others? Let's pray.